Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, hello there. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, that woman who loves mythology to an absolutely ridiculous degree, Liv. And gods, today I am joined by the author of a new retelling of none other than Cupid and Psyche. The novel is called Psyche and Eros. Yeah, we're putting her up first. And oh my, uh, do I know how much you all love that story to the degree where I probably put unnecessary pressure on today's guest by telling her as much. The number of times that I've asked about people's favorite episodes and heard how much you all love those early episodes I did on Cupid and Psyche, it's wild. Truly, I love how much you all love it. And while this story is what really got me into loving mythology as much as I do, so it was only right that I spoke with Luna McNamara about this new retelling, which is not only a new take on the story of these characters, but one featuring so much more than the traditional myth, the traditional story even, and in such a distinctly Greek myth realm, rather than, you know, it's Roman origins. We prefer the Greek, let's be honest. So Luna and I talked about that. We talked about myth and retelling it broadly, using it in your own words, your own story. We talked about Psyche and Eros as characters and everyone in between. We had so much fun and had so much to say, so let's not dwell on this intro when we can get right into exactly that. Conversations, modern mythologizing, Hellenizing Apuleius, Psyche and Eros with Luna McNamara. You know, to be transparent, I did invent and change and subvert and twist a lot because yeah. it's a story that's been out for 1800 years. And also it's just, it's such a strange and evocative story that there's a lot you can play around with there. And then yeah. there are also questions of reception and interpretation in general that I was really interested in because I, I'm very interested in what could be not necessarily what is like I, I don't want to jump to the most obvious interpretation I kind of want to play around with like well what if we see this from this perspective what if that aspect is actually misunderstood and it's this other adjacent thing since the myths didn't come down to us carved on tablets from Mount Sinai like these were oral traditions that were eventually written down that had different traditions in different regions and I'm always curious about like what was left out what was changed what are the versions that we didn't get to hear 
you're basically just um, hosting my podcast for me at this point. So, okay, we're going to jump right in. I'm going to keep all of what you just said because it was brilliant. But like, and I say that specifically because, so that's what I talk about like every episode these days, because especially for the last like few years, like when I started my show, I was very like surface level and just kind of finding whatever, because I really just like started this on a whim and, and it blew up in the good way. Um, but for the last years, like I'm obsessed with ancient sources. All I ever talk about is what's missing, fragmentary, what have you. So I want to start exactly right there, which is that like, in excuse me in advance, if I mess up and say Cupid and Psyche, because that's in my head. And I know your book is Psyche and Eros. Um, but my brain is going to go to the one that I've been reading for like 30 years and I'm going to do my best. But this myth is so interesting because in any kind of detailed form or really like in almost the entire form itself, it appears exclusively in this Roman author, right? Epileus, who who wrote this story. Got, yes, that's the best right translation, here. the golden ass, um, <laughs> yes. the Sarah Rudin translation to the listeners. Yes. That's the one I used in the old episodes. Like it is absolutely the best translation. It's so like... Oh yeah, so hardcore. It's the best. Um, and plus- it's fun. She really, yes. I, I think, hones in on the wackiness of exactly. Apuleius, which is yes. truly like only in Apuleius can you get like scatological donkey humor and these transcendent visions of celestial goddesses. Like it's a delight. It's like it's the Venus in that translation that like sings to my soul. She's so weird and uh, like over the top and like ridiculous i just love it so much but and super bitchy in a very delightful way like she's so mean i I love a good female villain oh my god absolutely no she she is precious and so like but this story is so unique in that way and so i know you went about it in greek uh to like as a greek or um, a greek story and so like i want to talk about that too but one of the things that's most interesting and i realize i haven't looked into it in like a lot of depth recently um, but like psyche appears in Greek myth, but the any kind of like idea that their love story as it appears in Apuleius, like doesn't have surviving sources in Greek, really, just like she as a person does and like an association with Eros. But it's so fascinating to me that this incredibly detailed, incredibly memorable, like everyone's favorite kind of story that appears only in Apuleius, like doesn't kind of have more grounding elsewhere. And so, I mean, I'm just kind of curious, like how you wanted to go about it, what you were thinking when you were like, I'm going to make this Greek, which I would do too, by the way, because it needs to be Greek. Um, I'm exclusively like, I mean, I like to you get it. You yeah. Get Greek it. is I the best. That. Greek is the only way to go. Absolutely. So yeah, like kind of how did you want to go about that? Because it is this like super unique story that is both explicitly Roman, but also like so deeply Greek at the same time. Yeah, so part of my choice is situated in mainland Greece around 1200 before the common era, uh, common era, roughly. A lot of that came from like what you were saying before about thinking about these other versions that were left out. Where where did Apuleius get his idea? And like from what I've heard from contemporary scholars who specialize in this myth, is it seems like Apuleius mostly made it up, but he did draw on previous sources and stories and especially artistic traditions. There are depictions of Eros and Psyche dating back to the archaic period. There's not a ton and there's not really other any other major written sources, but and it's such a unique story, especially where it appears in the Golden Ass, where it 
you hear the story after Lucius, who's been turned into a donkey by some witches, gone through some adventures. He's been captured by bandits. And there's this other young woman named Karate who has also been captured. And she is on the eve of her wedding. She was going to marry her beloved. And now she's been taken by these bandits and she's terrified she's going to be raped. And it's an old woman at the bandits camp who tells the story to her. And the story itself, as we get it from Apuleius, is very, very vague about its own origins. Uh, He just says, like, in a certain city. And there's mention of Miletus, which would be in Asia Minor, which was a Greek colony. So it's like, okay, so there's kind of a Greek connection there. Um, But a lot of it was, I I also wanted to riff on and reference some contemporary sources as well as Apuleius. So I was really interested in commenting on the modern cultural zeitgeist of these Trojan War retellings. Mm. We have Silence of the Girls from Pat Barker. We have Circe by Madeline Miller. We have Thousand Ships by our girl Natalie Haynes. There's a lot of interest in the Trojan War right now, and I think some of it comes from the fact that at least the U.S. uh, had these military interventions and wars in Afghanistan that went on for decades. It really didn't do a lot of good. (laughs) Um, So I wanted to kind of comment on a perspective of the Trojan War from the people who didn't fight in it, for Mm. people who were just sort of on the margins, like we're... We're getting a a little bit into the novel now, but Psyche is related to Agamemnon and Menelaus and Iphigenia in my version. And so she kind of has this perspective on the Trojan War that's like, okay, why are we doing this? Why are we putting our resources into this? So I was interested in commenting on that and... Also, I just like the Greeks. I studied Greek. I never studied Latin. Um, But I think in a lot of Greek sources, you you see this striving and restlessness and curiosity about the world that I I feel like you don't always get from the Romans. So a bit of that is my own bias. I mean, I'm with you. We're (laughs) on exactly the same side here. I've made, made it like a running joke in my show to just talk about how much better the Greeks are just objectively they're just so much better like sorry it's really <laughs> oh man you try to compare uh Valerius Flaccus's Argonautica to uh, Apollonius Rhodius's and you're like oh yeah this is really I haven't even read the Latin one because why bother <laughs> it's truly yeah it's it's not worth the price of admission um so yeah some of my own biases about what I wanted to explore and then also what I wanted to comment on as well mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I have so many um, topics that I'm going to try to also have ADHD and I'm on a new medication. So bear with my brain. Uh, All right. Um, So one of the things that comes up, I think a lot now when it comes to the myth of Cupid and Psyche, like, so the story itself is that like, for all that it's this love story that I personally love, like it's one of the first myths I think I ever had access to when I was really young. And so like probably from the time I was 10, like I've had this in my mind as like my favorite story. Um, And it's like, it's also spawned so many other things, right? Like Beauty and the Beast is like basically a play on it um, and everything from there, which is sort of fascinating in itself. But when we look at it now, there's like a lot of stuff where you're like, hmm, 
maybe this is a bit more problematic than we might have thought before. And so, you know, like there's a lot of oh, abduction, just being imprisoned somewhere and then falling in love. Like, I love it, but I'm also like, well, I love it because it's problematic. And like, you know, we can like tropey stuff. But like, so how did you kind of want to go about that? Like, what were you thinking when it comes to the, those aspects of it that are kind of inherently... <laughs> No, you're you're exactly right. And that's actually something I really had to the forefront of my mind when I was writing this novel, because like you, I, I think I was at summer camp when I first heard the story the first time. It was told around the fire. And there, there are so many aspects of it that are really gorgeous. Like you have these two individuals who are falling in love with each other in the darkness. You know, she comes in with the lamp and the razor they're separated and she has to um, undergo these trials to find him again. Like it's, it's really beautiful stuff. But then when you dig into the sources, it's a lot of weird shit, Liv. <laughs> exactly. um, it's a really big combination of like absolutely a beautiful love story and stuff where you're like, huh, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that happened. <laughs> exactly. And I, I, I had mentioned listening to your episode with Natalie Haynes, where you're talking about stone blind, mm-hmm. which amazing book by the way mm-hmm. loved it loved the interview too thank you <laughs> but there there isn't this concern with consent in ancient sources mm-hmm. um and i actually i was rereading apuleius to prep for this interview and there's this quote when uh psyche is first brought to eris's house and it's dark and he goes to bed with her and they mention like it's clear in the original Apuleius they have sex that first night and I don't know how much Psyche's into it and there's this mention of the these disembodied voices in the house tending to the bloody corpse of the new bride's virginity oh not the stuff of grand romance don't love that so as I was thinking about retelling this I really I honed in a lot on the characters of Psyche and Eros and thought about who they might be outside of the strictures of Apuleius, like what might have been the the sort of igniting forces or the seeds for the story that Apuleius eventually told. And with Psyche, I really, I wanted to create someone who wasn't afraid to find herself in this new house, not mm. because she wasn't intelligent enough to figure out what it meant, but just because fear didn't occur to her. Hmm. So what kind of person would that be? And there are also places throughout the myth, as it's told in Apuleius, where she shows incredible strength of character, even in that original version. Like when she's being marched away to the peak to be left to the monster, she turns around and gives this speech that's basically like, don't cry for me. This is my destiny. I'm going to face it. And then later on, when she's separated from Eros, she survives in the wilderness, petitions these goddesses, gets revenge on her sisters, which we'll get to that later. I don't love that part either. (laughs) Um, And does all these incredible things and does these things pregnant. So I really wanted to hone in on the agency and strength of Psyche and really do away with that corpse of the new bride's virginity stuff um <laughs> so horrifying phrase like I it's can't quite get really over that. yeah isn't that awful it's really gross um yeah. so in my version i have psyche and arrow spending a lot more time together also i truly believe when you have two characters that you want to tell a story about them getting together but there's a lot of distance send them on a quest 
have them do an epic quest together. So that's what happens in my version. And there's more of an organic build to their first time having sex and to their romance and to their marriage eventually. Yeah. It's, Um, yeah. I mean, I like that because it's like, I mean, it's basically just a a perfect way of like modernizing the story and making it like, I want to say palatable. I mean something better, but like, you know what I mean in that? Like, because there are so many unpalatable parts of the myth where it's like you take the story that the good parts of those stories and and like place it into this this world and these people that are so much more attuned to to like modern people and modern women broadly because I I imagine that you know you were thinking really strongly about about like the women characters I mean I realize I'm assuming this but with most retellings these days I feel like it's fairly safe um but like yeah focusing more on like on like a stronger woman character and Psyche is like you were saying which is sort of so interesting about her broadly in myth because so many women are not like that and not given the chance in the sources to be strong and that's not to say that there weren't stories of strong women and that women in the ancient world weren't, weren't strong and telling stories of strong women. But in terms of like what survives to us, most of the time, if they're not a goddess, like the women are just kind of there and things are just happening to them. And so taking that and like making it about her must have been so much more like fulfilling. Yeah. And I think the the bones of it are really there with mm-hmm. the Eros and Psyche myth. Like, even in Apuleius, like Psyche is the one who does the hero's tasks. That's like, what's so exciting. Yeah. yeah. Like the sorting of the grain, the gathering of the fleece, the fetching of Persephone's beauty from the underworld. Like these are heroic tasks in parallel to the labors of Hercules, really. Mm-hmm. And they're being done by a woman. Mm-hmm. That's pretty neat. It's gotta be the and only Apuleius- version that has that or only source that like has that kind of story of There's, a woman doing that it's really there might be others but i would have to really think yeah. about and dig for them and even so atalanta doesn't have that sorry yeah. <laughs> like, just some, my brain's going to all the different places but oh, yeah. I, I do love atalanta <laughs> oh yeah. yeah guess who shows up in psyche and eros yes atalanta. <laughs> yeah have a, i had a lot of fun writing her yeah um, and she shows up in book two again which we can Ooh, get to later in the yeah. interview <laughs> um yeah i mean the so the bones of this kind of interesting, complicated, powerful woman interpretation of Psyche are there in Apuleius. It is interesting. Apuleius seems like he kind of wants to drag down Psyche a lot. Like there's a lot of tears. There's a lot of saying she should kill herself when she can't, you know, immediately finish the labors. But, you know, how how much of that is faithful to the the mythologem itself and how much of that is, you know, some of Apuleius's biases and some of Apuleius making the story palatable to his readers Mm -hmm. in the second century CE. Mm -hmm. So I was really interested in honing in on that. And again, I, I, I like to riff on and pull in other sources as well, because I think what, in my opinion, what makes myth retellings and reimaginings interesting is the changes that the author makes to them. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read Apuleius, I've read Homer, I've read these guys, I know their version of the story, I want to hear yours. So I personally, as a writer, love pulling in other sources. And one of the sources I pulled in was um, C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, mm-hmm. Which is another retelling of Mm -hmm. the Eros and Psyche myth from the perspective of Psyche's sister. Mm -hmm. And C.S. Lewis makes a lot of changes as well in 
with that perspective that he has on the story, it's very shifted. Mm-hmm. But the sister's name is Orual. She becomes the queen of this country, and she's very much a martial warrior queen. So I was like, well, hey, Psyche, Psyche's already doing these heroic labors. What if I draw in some of that? And so I shifted the prophecy from Apuleius that Psyche would marry a monster to the prophecy that Psyche would conquer a monster. Mm-hmm. And we can also say some things about parallels between <laughs> conquering and marriage in the ancient world and yep. how that might have gotten mixed up and misunderstood by the priests of the Oracle of Delphi. But I thought it was an interesting kickoff point for the novel. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, it's funny. I haven't, I, I read Till We Have Faces like a million years ago now, probably like 15 years. And I'm like, crap, I really haven't read that in a while. And I don't remember much about it, except that it was like, yeah, these sort of different perspectives, but I'm glad to be reminded of it. So you kind you brought up like kind of exactly what I was going to go into next, which is that I know, especially with the hero's journey and like all of these things um, that you wanted to to do. And Sorry, now my brain's going to go in a couple different places. But like, one, it is my favorite thing when authors want to bring in all these different things and invent things alongside the myth. Because personally, as someone who spends, you know, eight hours a day, five days a week at absolute minimum reading the ancient sources and the myths, like, I, I don't find the same entertainment in a retelling that is just the myth. Because I'm like, but I know what's going to happen <laughs> because yeah. it happened already. And so it is so nice to have those ones that are, have these changes, have these inclusions of other stories and, and all these different like author inventions that make it kind of your own. Um, and so I know with yours, you brought in like a bunch of other Greek myths, like, like you said, Atlanta, and I know Prometheus is in there. And so like, how did you want to go about including those other myths like did you include some just because they're your favorites like I just love to hear about that kind of whole process absolutely so that was actually one of my favorite parts of writing this and the way I thought about connecting these other stories was basically okay so if I follow the trajectory of Psyche and Eros throughout Apuleius's version they do bump into the myths of other people. So like in Apuleius's version, the West Wind appears to fairy Psyche from the clifftop to Eros's house. It ferries Psyche's sisters there as well. But the West Wind is a personage in mythological sources. The West Mm -hmm. Wind is Zephyrus, who Mm -hmm. has his own set of myths. And one of the ones that I thought was most interesting is Zephyrus's romance with Hyacinthos, which Mm -hmm. is is a mortal youth who is like very beautiful. Um, And Zephyrus gets into this love triangle with Apollo over Hyacinthus. And Hyacinthus is eventually killed by a discus to the head, Mm -hmm. turns into the hyacinth flower. But what is that like for Zephyrus to fall Mm -hmm. in love with this young man so intensely and then to see him die and then to keep living after that? Yeah. And obviously that has a lot of resonance to the love story between Psyche and Eros, which is also a romance between a god and a mortal. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to draw that in as well. And I also wanted to play around with Zephyrus as a character and as a friend for Eros because he's just a form of transportation in Apuleius, but he has these rich connections to other mythological sources. Yeah. And it was similar with Persephone as well. So at the end of Apuleius's version, 
well, towards the end of Apuleius's version, Psyche has to do her catabasis, descent to the underworld, to get the jar of beauty from Persephone. But Persephone also has all these other myths around her about being a young woman who is abducted to the underworld. Mm -hmm. And a little bit of a spoiler for my book, I don't, I, I, I did not see Hades and Persephone as a love story in this. I see it as a kidnapping and as something that Persephone has to endure, but eventually claws her way to a place of major power in the underworld. It is it is interesting to to take that perspective, and minimally, as my listeners will know, I prefer the perspective that <laughs> Persephone was abducted and yes, took on immense power. So I'm just I'm I love to hear that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, she's um this kind of terrific goth underworld queen as she should be um, (laughs) who really had to claw her way there and Hades doesn't really show up at all she's really the power behind the throne even though she's only there half the time Mm -hmm. Um, and that's something I drew from other sources as well like Apollonius Rhodius's Argonautica Persephone is the one to send up the shade of uh, this Greek hero Mm -hmm. in the Odyssey Persephone is the Mm -hmm. one to send the souls of the women to talk to Odysseus and it's like there's so many other little examples of Persephone as the power in the underworld that you want to please and I was like oh that's cool oh yeah that's Um, my favorite she really is it like Hades is just kind of there (laughs) yeah he kind of you know he was like a legacy brat he He got (laughs) the job but like she's the one who runs shit Mm -hmm. Um, and she's also just narratively such an interesting foil to Psyche as two young women who were suddenly brought or dragged to their husband's house but psyche's ending is loving and happy and persephone's is i i mean i think happy in the end because she obtains this power for herself but Mm. i don't view it as a loving marriage between her and hades Mm -hmm. and additionally i was really interested in the myth of adonis as well Mm -hmm. who is this young mortal man both persephone and aphrodite fall in love with him He's killed by a boar. And the way I rewrote that was uh, Eros gets involved. Mm. Um, so Persephone asks Eros for a favor. And Eros is like, I get to screw over Aphrodite? Great. Um, and shoots Adonis with an arrow. Unfortunately, as Adonis is boar hunting and distracts him. And oh, no, I guess Persephone is going to see her boyfriend uh, sooner than she expected. <laughs> So that's the the way I went about folding the other myths in was I looked for the places where the story of Psyche and Eros collided with the stories of others. Mm -hmm. And there are, to be fair, I took some liberties. There are a couple places where I I really made them meet. Um, So there is a part where Persephone, sorry, Psyche has a conversation with Medusa where Medusa Mm calls into question these ideals of a hero that Psyche has, you know, kind of followed her whole life. And Medusa's like, really? You think killing things is heroic? Go feed someone. You know how many people are starving? That's very and Medusa. I, I love that. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I, I, if you're going to have someone call into question these ideals of heroism, it's got to be Medusa. It really we got to give her a voice. Ugh love her yeah she's my uh, all-time favorite um i've yeah i'm notorious in my show which is that i will talk and about her at any given time and forever and also i will defend forever that even the oldest surviving source of her does include um a a poseidon assaulting her and it's not consensual even in hesiod 
uh, and I will defend that to the death. <laughs> but yeah, anyway, Medusa is the best, and and certainly like as a as a person who yeah has anything to say against heroes, it's the woman who was killed by Perseus just because he wanted yep. her head and no other yep. reason at all. Yeah. Oh yes. Have you heard the song Medusa by uh, Kaylee Morg? Yes. Okay. If you hadn't, I was going to send it to you after yeah. the show because I love that song. It's I, so it's, good. It's like on a playlist that plays all the time, and but alongside so many other mythology songs, like I have this myth playlist. And so I'm like trying to piece it all out, but I know, yeah, that I've heard it a million times. And the minute it would start playing, it, I would know every second of it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she, she's the absolute best. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that she's included. Yeah. I mean, that's just so wonderful. I love, I love the inclusion of, of, of so many other stories and things. So, like, I mean, and this might have, you know, kind of already been sort of half answered by what you've been talking about here, but, like, were there any myths, and maybe the ones that are more, like, not directly related to Epileus, that that you really just, like, loved a character or a story so much that you're like, I'm going to slot it in here because I can make it work and I want to? I mean... Medusa has to okay. be one of yeah. them because like I, I just I was listening to your interview with uh, Natalie Haynes and all the stuff you were saying like about the original sources it being non-consensual and also the fact that Medusa isn't on record as killing anyone exactly with the whole mm-hmm. eyes stone thing mm-hmm. which takes a lot of effort yep <laughs> So I, I just, you know, I always, I have a soft spot for Medusa. I had to get her in there. Yeah. Um, and then Atalanta is mm. probably one of the bigger liberties I took. So there, in my version, there's the prophecy that Psyche will conquer the monster. Her parents are like, oh yeah, girl's going to be a hero. Great. Oh, I need to find her teacher. Well, we can't apprentice her to Chiron because he's a centaur and she's a girl and that they know what <laughs> centaurs are like. Maybe we could get an Amazon. Well, no, they, they tend to die in captivity and you can't pay them. What about Atalanta? <laughs> uh, so Atalanta is Psyche's teacher in this, partly because um, I wanted to highlight and emphasize that kind of heroic thread, but also because Atalanta is one of my all-time favorite figures from Greek mythology. I love her. I loved writing her as well as this sort of like cranky, laconic, and yet also affectionate mentor figure. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's one of the bigger liberties I took, but it was also one of the more fun ones. Yeah, but that's the thing, right? Like, I mean, one, as writing a novel, like you can and should take whatever liberties you want. But it's nice to have that specific type where you're like, I took this liberty because I really wanted to talk about Atalanta. And it's like, that's the best thing about, I think, mythology broadly, but also like specifically these retellings is that like, I mean, especially with how many there are now coming out all the time, like particularly this year, like the more liberties you take, the more your book is going to be sort of set apart from a lot of the retellings in an interesting way. And, and especially when it comes to these women characters, like gods, the more, the better, you know, and Atalanta is so fascinating and so fucking cool. Yeah. Clay 
am comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
I I did this um, two episode series on her like a year ago, I think, where I kind of because she's really interesting. And this is sort of my obsession with with ancient and fragmentary sources that's so specific to her, which is that like we have these this kind of idea that maybe there were two Atalantas who did almost the same thing, but like ones from Boeotia and ones from Arcadia. And I think that that is so fascinating. And so what I did was like separate them and do two different episodes of like this is the Boeotian Atalanta and I kind of stand by like the Boeotian Atalanta is the 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 heroic Atalanta that we think of the the Caledonian boar like the the one who's doing these like traditionally masculine things whereas this Arcadian Atalanta and I'm hoping not mixing it up but I'm pretty sure I'm not <laughs> but the Arcadian Atalanta is the one who like loses the foot race and you're like I don't understand how a woman who can fight the Caledonian boar and go amongst the Argonauts and like just kick all the ass in the whole world would then be like shiny thing, you know, and like lose a foot race that cost her, her, you know, relationship because of that. And I actually also spoke with Jennifer Saint uh, recently about her novel, um, Atalanta. And so it was interesting the way she kind of handled that too, because it is such a, it sort of feels out of place for her character. Anyway, that's sort of like my Atalanta like ramble, but she just really is, so fascinating especially when it comes to these kind of like very fragmentary aspects of her where there's just there's so many questions that you know a person can answer if they're so inclined in a retelling yeah exactly and um also like the role of love and romance in Atalanta's life I think Mm -hmm. is really interesting because famously this is someone who really doesn't want to marry but she has this very close, affectionate, mutually respectful relationship with Meliager. Yes. Kills his own family members to defend her honor when they try to take the pelt of the Caledonian boar away from her. Like, let's put, kills his own family members in ancient Greece. <laughs> yeah, <What>? not good. <laughs> not good. Quite shocking. Um, and then she also has this, she has the foot race mm-hmm. with Hippomenes Melanion, like, a couple different names names. in the sources (laughs) sources love doing that to us um and they they do seem to have they seem to have had an affectionate respectful marriage there like they uh they end up banging in the temple of rhea and getting turned into lions so (laughs) like clearly they liked each other um but for someone who doesn't want to marry to have these two extremely significant affectionate mutually respectful relationships with Mm -hmm. apparently some quite intense uh physical chemistry if you're bopping each other in a temple Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) um so i was interested to explore that as well and to think about this combination of fierce independence heroism and romance as well Mm -hmm. in the life of atalanta and how that reflects some of what psyche goes through as well in in my novel Mm -hmm. And also I had to write about Atlanta. I love her. Yeah, you just gotta. I get that. Yeah. I mean, I just, I love the story of Cupid and Psyche so much. And and it really is like, I feel like we've already said this, but my brain just wants to kind of harp on it. But this idea of like, yeah, like it it, it reminded me talking about Atlanta, but like it really is so, not only is there like mutual love and passion with Cupid and Psyche, which is so rare in ancient stories, But then, yeah, this same idea that, like, not only that, but she saves him in every possible way. And it just, yeah, this is not leading to a question or anything, but just must have been so satisfying to to work with a story like that. Because especially if you 
you know, are somebody who focuses primarily on Greece, like we both have done and do, like it is considerably more rare or like almost non-existent in Greek sources. And to, so to be able to like play with this story that exists and then turn it into your own. Uh, yeah. I just feel like there's, there's so much there. Yeah. And it was, um, this was a very much a pandemic project mm. um, and came out of a pretty dark time in my own life when I, I was living in a tiny one bedroom apartment in Boston when the pandemic hit. So Ugh. it was a lot of like, all right, here I am in my room, can't leave the house. Went through some pretty significant health issues, some interpersonal stuff, like breakup. I was laid off from my job. Oh my God, everything. And I was like, oh my God, like I, I'm stuck in this room. What am I going to do? All right. I, I always like this myth. I have this idea for a not, I, I guess I'm going to work on that. I don't have anything else to do. And it, it, really became something I dug into. I looked through the different sources, different mythological sources, thought about the kind of story I wanted to piece together. And that's what I really focused on in this pretty Mm -hmm. miserable time. Yeah, that's, I mean, I feel like a lot of, I mean, novels generally, and especially retellings kind of came from that in a nice way. It's almost like, I don't know. It, it, personally, like I started just working on the podcast more. So I also dove deeper into myth as like a thing I was already doing. And it, especially myth, I think was a really nice escape from that because it is just so separated from yeah. real life. Yeah. And like to get away from this nightmare of isolation and CNN and overrun mm-hmm. emergency rooms and just dive into what this cliffside house of this god of love might look like Mm -hmm. you know it was it was very satisfying for me and became something that I'm proud of yeah that's I mean especially when yeah when you get it published too like it's so exciting and yeah and what an accomplishment that that was a a wild journey because I So to talk about my background a little Mm -hmm. bit, um, I have a master's in theological studies from Harvard Divinity School. I initially wanted to become an academic, and then I saw it was an absolute dumpster fire. Uh, You're going to be adjuncting, or maybe you'll have to move to the middle of Idaho Idaho to get a tenure-track job. No shade to Idaho. Uh, (laughs) But it's just, academia is brutal, and also... I think much like you, what I love is jumping around and learning everything I can about something and then moving on. Mm -hmm. And academia doesn't want you to do that. It wants you to find your little molehill and really stay on it. Mm -hmm. So I've since ended up in social work, which is Mm. an interesting journey in and of itself. Yeah, came came at this with really no background in publishing, no MFA. Uh, I wrote a lot of fan fiction Amazing. Uh, fun, fun niche facts. Psyche and Arrow started out as a fanfic. Amazing. Uh, will you tell me of what? That's a secret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I. It is funny. I will shout from the hill to like, I'm a fan fiction writer. This started out as a fanfic. <laughs> and then people ask me what fandom and I'm like, classify. No, nope, I respect that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's probably going to figure it out someday and kudos to them. <laughs> um, I also have fan fiction that exists on the internet, but it is from like, the year 2001 Ooh. which means Ooh. that probably it will never be found but uh, yeah <laughs> i'm like i i yeah it's it's older for me but i 
love I love that. Yeah, that's definitely what I started writing too. <laughs> I did recently rediscover my teenage fanfiction.net account and then like oh, yeah. immediately closed my laptop and like walked away. <laughs> I, I have like, done no that. No one will ever see this. <laughs> I have done that. Mine exists too. Yep, 2001. <laughs> I was like 13 and writing fanfiction and it is still on fanfiction.net. <laughs> but I'm I'm also just such a proponent of fanfiction because it is creativity for the sake of creativity mm-hmm. and I think that's so vital in a world that increasingly disconnected and high priced and you know based on a culture of disposability like fan fiction writers are doing it because they love it and a lot of times that really shows yeah yeah Um, that's so true so it started out as fanfic yeah and during the pandemic I started reworking it into a novel um, started sending it out to agents around January February of 2021 and I got a wonderful nibble of someone who requested a full manuscript and then came back with a revise and resubmit because at the time I had this kind of peculiar narrative device where it was all in first person but omniscient narrator and it mm. it really didn't work. So I completely <laughs> rewrote it uh, and ended up signing with another agent, my girl Hattie Grunewald, who is in the UK love her did more rewriting with her and eventually got it published but it was a very up and down journey it was enormous amounts of rewriting there were a lot of moments of do I want to keep doing this or do I want to do literally anything else with my (laughs) life and I was like you know I want to I want to see this story through I want to see what what happens with it yeah I love to hear that. So I actually, my background is in publishing mm-hmm. and I left it very specifically. Um, but like I went, I did all of my schooling with the intention of being an agent only to then work for Penguin Random House and, and then clearly leave very happily. Um, but it Congratulations. is, thank you. It's much better on the other side. Now I get, I, I remember specifically being like, I'm going to lose out all my free books when I leave this job. And I was looking at, <laughs> I was looking at my kitchen table where I also work just the other day and I was like I did not lose out of my free books I've got this like stack of like six <laughs> free m- books of either retellings or mythology or what have you that like publishers want to send me all the time I'm like great I just found a different way it's perfect good good yeah. for you and I mean as you can see from my own career journey I am a big fan of people who set out to do one thing and then up do and then end up doing something entirely different which is also psyche's character trajectory in the novel yeah we we start out with this hero girl thing and then we subvert it and not because psyche is too small for that dream but because the dream is too small for her Hmm. so come for the girls with swords and stay for the deconstruction of the patriarchy I mean, if that is not like the catchphrase of my podcast, I don't know what it is. I love that. That's amazing. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and you're you're yeah. also work. You have a Cadmus and Harmonia novel, don't you? How's that, that novel. Going? Oh, thank you for asking. That novel has been going uh, since the year 2008, and is the reason I went to school to be an agent, and then still is not finished, uh, and is in a very different form now. Um, but actually, funny enough, Kate, uh, whose episode you listen to, is currently reading it to be helpful to me, Kate Corain. Um, yes. And so we'll see. I don't know. I'm con- like, I'm just kind of constantly like, I'll work on it. But then the podcast uh, takes up a little bit of time. So, you know, yeah. but it's going to happen eventually because Cadmus and Aronia are my reason for living. <sighs> <Yeah>. They are. <laughs> 
so fascinating. They are. They're baffling, and that's what makes them so cool. There's like What's nothing. A, about I mean, I'm not to not to turn the tables on you, mm. but I'm going to turn the tables on you. <laughs> what is uh, an aspect of the novel that you're digging into now, or or something that's really come up to interest you? So the thing that I it's funny because this is yeah a completely different novel. Like it started out as like I was like 19, I think, when I started writing it. What's math? Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and so like it was like a nineteen-year-old's novel, and then I just became so obsessed though with Cadmus and Harmonia that it's like just kind of carried through with me to now becoming this like obsessive about ancient history novel. But the fun thing about them is that there really isn't much of a story, so you kind of have to invent all of it. Um, and so the thing that I found that's sort of taken over my life is their association with the island of Samothrace, which is uh not always in the ancient sources, but a lot of times. Uh, Harmonia comes from there and there's more detail in like a very late and ridiculous um, source called Nonus. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's wacky. He wrote the longest surviving epic. It's like 48 books. Um, It is absurd. Uh, But he wrote a lot about that. So the island of Samothrace has this like completely wild and uh, mysterious island, not least because it has a mystery cult um, is the big the big oh, thing now mystery cult. and it is the second biggest second most important mystery cult of ancient greece and we know almost nothing about it like i went there actually last year um and like even to get to samothrace like nobody goes to samothrace they joked like i swear i was like the only canadian that's like been there in the last five years and it's a fascinating place because it has this ancient sanctuary that is quite sprawling and and survives pretty heavily and like it's primarily from the hellenistic period um, but there's some classical and archaic aspects as well. And like even Linear A was found on Samothrace. Like it's a wild island. Um, but it, it, there's this sprawling uh, sanctuary and there's no temple, but there's everything else. They still don't know what gods were associated with the mystery cult, but it was like a vitally important mystery cult. Like the Argonauts, are, they go there and they get inducted. I was about to say, was that where Orpheus took them and they went through the mysteries there? Exactly. Yeah, it's one of the only kind of inclusions in a, in another larger myth. Um, and even like even the the theater confuses archaeologists. So like it's a there's a whole amphitheater except there's no stage, and it's on an angle, so it doesn't actually even face anything any other part of the sanctuary fully it it just kind of like is an amphitheater but like with no obvious purpose anyway it's baffling and i clearly could talk about it forever but i won't continue um but that is ultimately the answer to your question that is absolutely (laughs) delightful again we love a good mystery call right Uh, and i didn't really know anything about Samothrace, so thank you for telling me about okay, you're, that. You're so welcome. I could talk about Samothrace at any given moment. Uh, yeah, it's 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 wild, but I mean, it is. It, it gives me this sort of like interesting insight into writing a, a story from Greek myth, but specifically the type where, like, what you've worked off of is, is like the invented parts, the the sort of changing of things, and and that kind of thing is just I don't know. It generally fascinates me broadly. Um, yeah, this is not leading to a question, uh, but... <laughs> that is totally fine. Interesting. Um, I mean, the the mystery cults are... Uh, they're so fun. They're so they cool. They really are. Um, yeah. And for the... So, so for the Samothracian mystery cult, do you think we... Do we not have evidence for that because of a lack of written sources or because people were actually following the don't talk about 
the mystery cult. First rule of mystery cult is you don't (laughs) talk about the mystery cult. I think both um, because they they obviously go hand in hand. Um, But like specifically for this one, it's associated with sailors and like safety upon the seas, but is not explicitly associated with Poseidon. The closest Mm -hmm. kind of connections we know are like, um, Lemnos is, is just south of, of Samothrace and obviously it's um, sacred to Hephaestus and he has these gods on Lemnos called the Kabiroi which are kind of mysterious but we kind of know a bit about them and so the Kabiroi are associated with Samothrace but it's more like we don't know if they were like the primary gods or who they were in terms of the wider Kabiroi apparently um, well not apparently but Aeschylus did he has a, a lost play called the Kabiroi and like mm-hmm. may or may not have included Samothrace but again it was mostly Hellenistic which is sort of interesting in itself because that's sort of like it's such a interesting and like transient kind of time yeah. and it and yeah so it's just generally like a yeah it, we just like don't really know much at all but the fact that there isn't a temple but like there's all these other buildings like loads of people live there the stoa is like sprawling it's huge and no temple <laughs> Which is just like, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, I got to hang out with the archaeologists there when I was there and like get all these tours and stuff. So I feel like I got, I mean, extra insights for sure. But just also those sort of like deep nerdery involved. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a wild, wild island too. Like there's more goats. Goats outnumber humans 10 to 1. They're just (laughs) everywhere all the time. And I encountered more bugs than I ever have in my life. Like they're just on me all the time. I got followed by butterflies walking down the street. Like it's the weirdest place. I felt like a wow. Disney princess. Like I just could. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's bananas. <laughs> um, but I but, think there, there yeah. still is a connection to more stuff we can talk about because yeah. <laughs> the idea of mystery cults and initiations and also the platonic idea of the ascent of the soul through matter. Mm-hmm. These are, very much tied in to the story of Eros and Psyche. And in Apuleius, where the story appears midway through, after the bandits uh, get our boy Lucius, the the Golden Ass ends not just with Apuleius being turned into a human again by this incredible apparition of the goddess Isis, who calls herself by all these different names that the Hellenistic and Roman world would have recognized. But it actually ends with Apuleius's initiations into the priesthood of Isis, Osiris, and Horus. Like he's mm. he's paying them back for for what they did and recognizing them and growing as a person. Mm-hmm. And that's I think apparent in the original version of the Psyche and Eros story where she has to overcome these trials, but it's also something I wanted to play with as well, because not, not only does she eventually go through um, apotheosis and become a goddess herself, but she's gone to the underworld. She's undergone these trials. She is a goddess now. What do you do with that? What do you Hmm. do after you've been transformed? And so the, the last chapter of the novel gets into that. Ooh. which i won't say more about yeah because spoilers <laughs> but yeah we we love a good mystery cult we love a yeah. good initiation it's oh it's, it's such fascinating stuff and elusis shows up a little mm-hmm. bit because again the the places where the psyche and arrow story intersects with other stories persephone is a major one of those mm-hmm. and also psyche has to sort grain and grain is associated with demeter and mm-hmm. so let's bring in demeter and persephone 
And what a fascinating dynamic that is. Yes. Uh, mythologically, but also in the novel. And just Eleusis itself was so cool. Like the idea that men, women, and children throughout the Greek world could be initiated that we still don't know a lot about the rites because people kept that vow mm-hmm. of secrecy. And also just, this is a really fun aside. Um, so part of the Eleusian mysteries was bathing in the sea. Mm. And at some point, some poor guy was eaten by a shark I was while just, he was bathing. As soon as you said that, I was like, I'm going to tell the shark story. Um, <laughs> so I love that. Yes. What, yeah. what gets me is like, I just picture everyone else bathing being like, so should we keep going should should we go home what what (laughs) like what did everyone else think oh my god the poor priests or priestesses who had to lead that thing (laughs) dealing with the guy's family what a mess i know i actually i had a guest on ryan denson um who came on to talk about sea monsters and he was the one who told me that story and yeah, it, it, I mean, it's, I'm a shark person outside of my Greek mythology existence. Um, and so that's my favorite story. It's really like that poor that's, guy. Yes. <laughs> that poor it's guy. so wild. Like, what are the chances? Like, sharks don't go that close to shore all that often. Yeah. Like, it's also just like a surprising shark attack story, regardless. I mean, someone wrote it down. So they're yeah. like, oh my gosh, like, you let people know about happened? this one. Yeah. I mean, it was big news. Well, so that that kind of uh, just the talk of Demeter and Persephone is I, they're so wonderful, especially Eleusinian mysteries. Like, yeah, I, I want to learn everything about that. But it, it sort of reminds me of something you brought up earlier um, to get back to, which is like the the sisters in Epileus are very yeah, they're difficult um, and kind of tricky. So I'm curious, like, what your thought process was and how how you wanted to handle the sisters. Liv, I gotta be honest with you. I fucking hated that part of the myth. Yeah. Um, because I, so for, for the listeners who might not be familiar with it, Psyche has these two older sisters who, you know, after Psyche settled in at Eros's house, they come to visit her and they're like, oh, this bitch, like she gets to marry this guy, live in this house and we have to marry these old men and it's awful and we got to get her. And so they're the ones who are like, well, maybe your husband is a monster and you should bring that lamp into the bedroom, even though he's told you not to, because he'll probably kill you and eat you. And in Apuleius, Psyche does this. They're separated. She has to undergo the trials to get Eros back. But first, she gets one over on her sisters and like basically tricks them into falling to their deaths. And it's just narratively... It's fucking awful because, mm-hmm. like, why are you having this whole aside with the sisters and vengeance when you're also looking for Eros? And to be fair, I, I love a good aside. There is plenty of that in my novel, but narratively, it makes no sense. And also, it just, to me, seems like such a clear place of Apuleius's own biases. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very anti woman. The... It's like women yeah, are very, women very are jealous. Like, yeah, they're willing to exactly. fuck over their sister because she married the good guy. Like, get a grip. Yeah. And they're just, the characters are really 
all, all we get from them is their jealousy. We don't mm-hmm. really get anything else. And then Psyche kills them, even though she doesn't really kill anyone else in the Apuleius myth. So that it's very strange narratively. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows Apuleius's biases, as we were saying. And like Roman, God, Rome, Rome especially Roman mm-hmm. writers, really love highlighting like how weak and susceptible women are and how jealous they are. And I was like, you know, this, I don't like this. And additionally, <laughs> there are so many good reasons to be concerned about your sister when she is whisked away to a house mm-hmm. and married to a husband that she can't see. Like, that is that is actually something to genuinely be concerned <laughs> about. Yeah. And that's something that C.S. Lewis really plays with in Till We Have Faces, which is written from the perspective of one of those sisters and shows that she's more than just jealousy as a personality trait. Mm-hmm. So with the sisters, that's one of, I think, the biggest changes I made in the novel, because I just made Psyche an only child, a late-life baby of this king and queen of Mycenae. And instead, I gave her sister-like figures. So she has Atalanta, sort of an older sister figure, as a mentor, as someone who helps train and advise her. And she also has Iphigenia, who in my version is her cousin, and who is this bright, insightful, curious child of Agamemnon, who doesn't think too highly of her because she's a daughter, but wants to become a priestess of Artemis and is very curious about this archery and fighting stuff that Psyche is doing and learns a little bit of it, but is ultimately someone who really survives by her wits and her relationships and who is very political as well. And, you know, eventually there is uh, some tragedy there as well, but I'll, I'll leave that to the readers. So instead, I, I really wanted to hone in on those sister-like relationships. And Iphigenia is the one to point out, like, Psyche, you are the only child of the king and queen of Mycenae. Whoever you marry is next in the next for the throne. And you don't even know who your husband is? What's going Danger. on here? <laughs> yeah, this is concerning. <laughs> Um, so I really, yeah, I, I very much shifted around the sisters thing because it was incongruous to the narrative. It was evident of Apollos's own biases and I fucking hated it. So yeah. <laughs> I did away with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It, it's such a, like, yeah, it's such a sort of glaring. It's like we talked about earlier, the different parts where you're like, hmm, this is a little bit more problematic, you know, now with our modern sensibilities and things um, when it comes to to Apuleius generally. I also have to admit, and this is my, well, I'm not even that ashamed of admitting it. I have not read much Apuleius beyond the Cupid and Psyche portion because every time I've tried, I've just thought, this is just so Roman and weird and I don't really care about it. <laughs> you are so right. Yeah. There are, the, the ending with uh, Isis and her monologue is really transcendently gorgeous. Okay. Good and there, the parts about his initiations into the mystery mm-hmm. cults is really beautiful. But a lot of it is very peculiar. Some yeah. of it is very funny. But yeah, it's it's kind of a strange story. Yeah. I, I've read some of the, the parts that feature witches because I, mm. I often try to... I like to do a spooky season episodes where I try to find whatever kind of, you know, that that sort of vibe um, in the myths. But and it, it's part of what has led me to just my own theories on 
Rome's witches versus Greek witches, which I find fascinating, which is like in the Greek myths, we have Circe and Medea and, you know, Hecate. We have these women who are like powerful and they're goddesses and they're, you know, they're really as much as Medea is, you know, does some bad things. Like she really holds a lot of agency and power in her life. I have a very soft spot. Oh, for I Medea. love, I love Medea. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I mean, I can defend her a little bit too strongly, I would say, um, for somebody who killed her children. But uh, or did she? Or was well, it the Corinthians? <laughs> oh, see, I'm fine with them it being her. I can stand by that. <laughs> I'll still defend it. But but then you have these Roman witches, like from people, um, I mean, like Epileus, but then there's the other Roman poet, and I'm always going to forget, but he has this um, witch. And like the witches of Rome tend to be these like weird withered old hags mm. that are just like creating dangerous love potions to like fuck over men. Um in comparison to like Circe and, and Hecate, which I just generally find fascinating. But Epileus is one of the places where I sort of vaguely looked into the, the Roman take on witches, which just to me suggests kind of Rome's and their their authors' feelings towards women, which Epileus kind of proves in a lot of places too, like that sister moments and things. Yeah. yeah. No, that's that's an excellent. I'm gonna have to put that episode on my uh my to listen to list. <laughs> oh god, there's um, I mean there's Hec- so many episodes. <laughs> Hecate does show up in Psyche and Eros. Um, I mean and I I actually I make the controversial decision to fold in more of that Roman uh iconography of like this old haggard woman. Uh and also I was really inspired by the myths of the Baba Yaga, like Hecate's mm-hmm. house is on uh chicken feet. Yes. Um just again because i really like it and i think it's interesting to have as well because the gods are so often like young and youthful and like what if one of them's not yeah and uh in book two you get a little my book two you get a little more uh information about that i mean here for it god hecate is the best um yeah so i mean it's god it sounds like you were just able to weave in so many different characters and stories and things like were there any that you really wanted to fit in because you really wanted to write about them or stories that you really loved or whatever, where you're just like, nah, I can't make this work. Like, was there anything that was kind of left out? I I actually wanted to do more with Penelope and mm. my editors were like, Luna, please don't put in every single opinion you've had on every Greek bit that. Like, please calm down. <laughs> Um, but Penelope is so interesting because she essentially rules Ithaca for 20 years. She manages these suitors. She has the whole stratagem with the weaving of the shroud, which love that. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't really forgiven her for not stepping in to prevent the hanging of the maids. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on with that. I don't know if you were just sleepy that day, Penelope, but uh your your hubby uh, killed twelve of your innocent maids, and mm. uh, that's that's kind of fucked up. Um, but I would have loved sure to even more with Penelope, but mm-hmm. my editors were like, "Please calm down." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Penelope is so fascinating, also because of the way that she is treated by others. Mm-hmm. Like as a character of as a person in the Odyssey, I absolutely love her. Like the Odyssey is my favorite epic by so much, and I could talk about it forever. But and I love Penelope in it, but then what fascinates me is how other people talk about her. Like right now, I'm talking, uh, I'm working on episodes covering Euripides' Oresti, or not Oresti, Orestes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like so many, or, or there's at least one like really specific comparison, you know, of, I guess it's Clytemnestra in this case, like, but to Penelope, which of course, poor Clytemnestra gets compared to Penelope like constantly because of the timelines and things. Like yeah. in the Odyssey itself, that comparison is like, 
wacky where literally it's you know mental or however it works i guess it's in the underworld where agamemnon's like um (laughs) my wife she killed me not like your wife who's been like perfect this whole time and it's like yeah so penelope just has like that extra kind of depth so i can see why you would want to talk about her some more (laughs) and those maids you know oh yeah i I still haven't forgotten them yeah yeah, and I think, I mean, even just, like, the, the use of the word maids, like, it's, you know, it's a reason why Emily Wilson's translation is so good, um, because we get, like, otherwise, the, a lot of the old translations just called them, like, I don't know, probably, like, whores or something horrible. Yeah, they, I mean, they called them, like, sluts and harlots, and, like, yeah. these were probably quite young women who mm-hmm. were enslaved. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yep. what's going on? I don't they know. They had no ability to control what was going on to them. <laughs> and are yeah. punished for it, yeah. And were hanged essentially for being raped by uh, Penelope's suitors. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm still thinking mm-hmm. about the maids. Yeah. I still, I still want justice for them. Dudes in ancient Greece, they're sometimes problematic. Which is this is also true. the catchphrase <laughs> of my podcast, basically. Absolutely. writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV True Crime Podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. 
I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Actually, that kind of segues into, um, could I talk a little more about Eros's character? Please, building please. Him? So I, I think I, I talked a little more about building the character of Psyche, but Eros, in like the first draft, he was very thin. Like his mm. character was very thin. And I was like, okay, I got to add more. Um, and for him, I actually, I remixed a little bit of Hesiod into it, mm. um, where Hesiod names him as one of the primordial gods mm-hmm. and then there's a later philosopher Empedocles who cites Eros and Eris who is desire and um, discord as mm-hmm. two of the central principles of the universe so Eros in my novel is one of the primordial deities and he has the sister named Eris who is kind of his opposite they don't really get along very well uh, there's a lot of tension there. No one can get along with Eris. That's her whole deal. I That's kind her. of her entire point. Yeah, yeah this is yeah. true. But he, you know, what what is it like to be this primordial god and to be mm-hmm. uh, faced with this new world and new universe in which you should participate in its creation? And he's just like, nah, I'm going to take a nap. And throughout the novel he's he has this very like contrary wry jaded character he's been around for thousands of years he's not really impressed by things he doesn't really he doesn't really want the powers he has um and for that characterization i was really i i drew a lot on aaron carson's scholarship Mm -hmm. of and depictions of eros as sweet bitter Mm -hmm. in greek sources that Love can be wonderful and lovely, but it's also, it can be awful as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I love Anne Carson generally. I've not read, that's, I mean, I guess it's all coming from Eros, The Bittersweet, that book. I think that's one that's been on my list forever. It's sitting right behind me and I've still not read it, but 
I mean, generally, she's the best. That's the translation of Orestes that I've been working on for this series, because if there's an Ann Carson translation, I'm going to use it. Um, but yeah, that's really fascinating to play with that primordial aspect of him because it it's so unique. And Hesiod is so interesting in how he handles it, too, because he also like he has this primordial Eros. And then he also kind of simultaneously has an Eros who's who's like seemingly birthed alongside Aphrodite after, mm-hmm. you know, the Uranus castration. And it's always kind of fascinated me when I try to explain it to my listeners. I like to call them big love and little love, like this idea of like the primordial Eros being like the very concept of love as a thing. Whereas the little Eros is more like, I'm going to make you fall in love with this person. It might end in tragedy, you know, but it's still love. And so I like the ideas like just generally surrounding that. So I can imagine playing with that really primordial aspect must've been very fun because it's so unique. There's not a lot of primordial gods that actually like do anything in myth. Very, very primordial, but also very human, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the fun things about the Greek gods. So you start thinking about like, all right, what would it be like for me to face this primordial Mm -hmm. world? That sounds tiring. I would like to take a nap, actually. (laughs) It's so long. Life is so long if you're primordial. There's, you know, there's not really any any challenges or goals to hit when you're a god. Mm -hmm. Um and then also, I, I had mentioned before, I was I, I do social work now, and I work primarily with older adults. I help grandmas, mostly. I help them stay in their homes, get health care, get food, all of those things. But the perspective you get from working with seniors is really interesting, because the the amount of heartbreak and tragedy and triumph that a human being has seen by 70 or 80 years old, you're like... Um, I'm kind of glad we get closure on that. Uh, yeah. I'm glad we uh, we see, we get an end to our stories and thinking about what that would be like on a timeline of thousands of years of all of the betrayal and suffering and broken friendships um, you would have seen by then. Yeah, was something that really influenced the story as well. Yeah, what an interesting perspective to come from. That's really interesting. I, one of my favorite things about elder care yeah. social work is the stories you hear. Yeah, like I've I heard such wild stuff oh. and people are like, Oh, I hope I'm not taking up your time. <laughs> I'm like, no, tell me more. This is fascinating. And like, yeah. also we need to get this tax form so you can apply for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh yeah. And what a way to like use it, you know, in your writing too. That's wonderful. Well, so, I mean, are there any other characters that you want to talk about? I'm really bad at remembering to ask about certain ones particularly when I'm like but the women um so (laughs) but like there are you know uh people that are not women in your book and so yeah is there anyone else that you kind of want want to talk about in this way or mythologically or as a character or what have you I mean, Eros, Eros is the big one because mm-hmm. he really surprised me. Like at first I was like, oh my God, what do I do with you? <laughs> like yeah. you're just kind of a dude here. But then as I delved more into the sources and Ann Carson's secondary scholarship, I was like, you know, you've, you've actually got some interesting stuff going on, Eros. Um, and then Zephyrus as well. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's a tweak to the original myth that I'm really proud of, that the West Wind was originally just a form of transportation in Apuleius, but I was I wanted to hear about Zephyrus the character. And so he becomes kind of this trickster 
comic relief, but also like a deeply romantic and tragic character because of his because of his connection with Hyacinthos and mm. that he doesn't stop loving Hyacinthos just because Hyacinthos is dead. Mm-hmm. And what's and that like? That's such an interesting usage too, because that story is so you so typically framed around Apollo mm-hmm. that it's nice. I mean, Apollo is also like such a problematic god that like yeah, it's nice to have that more about Zephyrus, who is, that's one of his very few, like, actual stories, other than just, like, him being one of the winds. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed that that you were able to include that. I will also just praise myself um, for a split second, which is that when I told yeah. that story, I, it's one of my favorite titles of all time because I was able to call it a Frisbee tragedy. <laughs> Um, and it's a combination of words that you don't get to say very often exactly and it's so accurate uh and so i just had to say that again but yeah like you know it's also it is a very tragic story um and and so being able to do that is really lovely that like were there any other gods like uh, you know i talk about apollo being problematic and stuff like that's one of talking about how dangerous and problematic the greek gods are is like my favorite pastime um so was there any kind of that aspect that you were really keen to include or just like the gods, the sort of periphery gods generally, like how did you kind of want to play with them and and go about utilizing them? Well, she's not peripheral, but Aphrodite Mm, obviously has a major, major role because (laughs) she's kind of the one that she kickstarts the events of the Eros and Psyche myth and Apuleius and in Mm -hmm. mine. And, um, and it comes down to jealousy that Psyche is being compared to her and, and Aphrodite is like, oh, hell no. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and Aphrodite is very much the villain in my version and in uh, Apuleius, mm-hmm. but she's kind of a delicious villain. Mm. Like she is, she's very sensual. She's, you know, not always direct about the ways she gets revenge, but she's kind of a Sailor Moon villain. I like <laughs> love that. You know, she has that sensu- sensuality, but also enormous power as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was fun to play around with. And mm-hmm. my my protagonists are often women in my writing, but my villains are also often women as well. Because I think if you really want to be feminist and get the full scope of women's experiences, it's going to encompass all of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um And also in writing Aphrodite, you know, drawing on the story of Adonis and similar to Hyacinthos, Mm -hmm. that there was this enormous love there. And now the mortal is dead and the god just has to keep on living with that heartbreak and that misery. Mm -hmm. And what's that like for them? Mm -hmm. And also for the goddess of love, Aphrodite has a pretty rocky romantic uh, past. Like she's hitched with Hephaestus. She's not thrilled about that. She has this tasty affair with Ares that's hot and sizzling and uh, ends with them in a net on the floor of Olympus. That's awkward. There's Hermes, who is Hermes. Good God. Uh, (laughs) So it's, you know, she, she doesn't have like a very smooth romantic trajectory herself, but she Mm -hmm. is the goddess of love. So, you know, was curious to delve into that as well. Mm-hmm. She's always been my favorite goddess for those reasons, because 
yeah, she just doesn't fit into anything. And she also like gets to kind of do what she wants. Like she's married to Hephaestus, but it doesn't really stop her from anything. And yeah, <laughs> she's such a fascinating character, um, especially when you get to play with these villain aspects, because she gets to be more, you know, she's a, a villain, but she's also the goddess of love. And like, sh- there's just so much to her um, that like the the sort of complexity and depth is sort of inherently there. Um, and then so much more to work with on, on your end to kind of like play around with what all of those things mean, you know, the the sort of good and the bad sides to these people. Yeah, exactly. And in, in Apuleius, like, it's, it's something I couldn't really pull into my version, but there's this idea of Venus as the generative principle of the universe. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, she's not just this piddly goddess of love. She's sort of this celestial, powerful, very um holistic goddess but i couldn't mm-hmm. i didn't really have time to pull that in <laughs> yeah that's fair there's a I, lot going on yeah i had editors who were like please stop putting in every opinion <laughs> you've ever had please calm down yeah i mean that sounds like me trying to write anything about greek myth because there's just so much there and so much just lives so inside much. my head yep and i've opinions on everybody and everything and yeah it's it's endless in the best possible way <laughs> yeah well i mean this has been incredibly fascinating. Are there any other like specific things you want to share about the book just because you want to talk about them or you think my listeners would want to know or really anything? I think that's the biggest thing. I, If it's all right with you, I would love to talk a little bit about book two. Yes, please. I never um, know kind of how much you want to share about that kind of stuff. So yes. Oh my gosh. So book two, I'm delving into uh, The Argonautica by our Ooh. boy Apollonius Rhodius. Yes. Um, and I'm centering around three unlikely heroes in it who are Jason, Atalanta, and Medea. Mm. So yes, you get to see the younger version of Atalanta yes. that you saw in Psyche and Eros. Um, and also Medea is just so fascinating to me. Uh-huh. Like we have the one source on Psyche and Eros, but we have, I mean, I think a dozen that mention Medea. Like she's so well attested to. She's so complicated. The child murder thing might be a Euripides fanfic. Yes. Um, and yet it's still fascinating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is also really interesting. Like yeah. I, I do love the play Medea by Euripides. Mm. Um, but she's so complicated. And actually, Jason is a lot more complicated and compelling than I originally thought. Really? Like, he, I, I mean, I think I did not go in with high <laughs> expectations for okay. Jason. I went in very low expectations. Yeah. Um, but I do, I mean, I love the visual of him showing up at um, the palace at Iolcus and confronting Peleus and wearing one sandal like he's Jason so weird, absolute yeah? dingus like just take the other sandal off no he <laughs> yeah. shows up with one sandal mm-hmm. what a dingus um, but also he has this speech partway through the Argonautica where the other Argonauts are arguing and debating and he's like I just want to get all of you home like mm. I just I, I worry about something happening to you I just want to get you guys home and it's like, you know, is that Jason trying to represent himself in the best light, which he loves doing? Does or is it a core of genuine feeling? Mm-hmm. And also the romance between Jason and Medea, which in many ways is so one-sided. 
thinking about it from Jason's perspective is interesting. What do you do when this incredibly powerful witch girl is really into you Mm -hmm. and can really help you with your goal of getting all your guys home? Mm -hmm. Um, Which is, you know, I I think I'm more partial to Medea here, but I was a little (laughs) surprised by how much I didn't completely despise Jason. I mean, Mm -hmm. he still sort of sucks, but, (laughs) you know. I have a lot of, uh, there's often a lot of debate on my show about who's worse between Jason and Theseus. I will stand by it's always Theseus, no question. I was going to say, Theseus would be my vote there. Yeah, I I think there's really no argument to be made, but a lot of people disagree with me. Um, But from my perspective, how I've always seen Jason, like aside from Euripides, because then I think he's like a true villain. um, But otherwise, I find him to just be so like, simple. Like, he's just very surface level. Like, everything kind of happens to him and around him. And he's just kind of there for everything. (laughs) I actually, I see him as, like, almost a little bit bumbling and very Mm. ordinary. Like, when the Argonauts pull up to the land of the Babrishians and there's this fist fight between Polydeuces and the Babrishian king. And eventually all the Argonauts have to go and fight. Like, Jason's the last one to jump off the ship. Yeah. <laughs> and it's and that's from a writer who is partial to Jason. Yes. So I don't I don't know. I, I have developed a soft spot for Jason that I think might be somewhat Stockholm syndrome. <laughs> um, I respect that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really it's <laughs> Medea and Atalanta that I'm really interested in Mm -hmm. in the upcoming novel and um, there's because they were the only two women on the Argo Mm -hmm. and what was that like Mm -hmm. and they're they have a lot of similarities in their sense of agency but they also really differ in their methods where Medea is this witch who works on the margins and Atalanta is kind of a jock you know so what would it be like to meet for them to meet each other. Um, and yeah. there's a fragment in Diodorus Siculus that mentions Medea healing Atalanta after a battle. And I was like, all right, I've, I've written enough fanfic to make this work. Yes. So I also kind of want to explore a sapphic element as well. Amazing. Because of who I am as a person. I mean, I respect this. Also, ancient Greece needs more of it because Sappho was literally there. I so know. like, come on. <laughs> uh, also, she's like basically on the route of you know the argonautica so that's just me stretching it but uh you know lesbos is right that there. could be fun yeah, yeah. let's right go meet Sappho, guys. at the very least go to lesbos you know <laughs> um yeah i love that that's really interesting and like i was going to ask um because i know you know atalanta for all that she is often seen as a member of the argo or of the argonauts on the argo um she is not in Apollonius's Argonautica and that's always so interesting so yeah so are there a lot of sources when it comes to Atalanta and Medea together so it's really just that one fragment in Diodorus Siculus but then there's Apollodorus who specifically names Atalanta as a member of the Argonauts Mm -hmm. um but there are, man, we got like half a dozen different Argonautica. Oh, I we know. We have the Orphic Argonautica. We have Valerius Flaccus, who's you know, yeah. it's not really worth reading. Um, <laughs> Diodorus Siculus and his Library of History, describing and the journey of the Argonauts, which I, I really Medea? like Diodorus Siculus. He's very interesting. Yes, his Medea is incredible. Like his Medea is where we get so many fascinating things about her that don't exist anywhere else yeah yeah i absolutely love him like for medea alone and hecate because i think he's the one who makes her hecate's daughter exactly too, right yes, yes which that's really interesting too like mm-hmm. medea medea is associated with hecate throughout the myths but 
Diodora Siculus is the one who names Hecate as her mom. Mm-hmm. And what's that like? All right, mom, come on, let's go do witchcraft. Right? Yes. I've, that, I think basically I've only read him in relation to the witches because he provides so many like newer insights into their characters and I love it. Um, that's really fun. I, I yeah, I, I'm, I always wish like Apollodorus gave us more of anything. Yeah. Um, somebody once called him the TLDR of Greek myth. And I just think that's so accurate that I'll never forget it where it's like, thanks for like these really simple statements. So I generally know what happened, but like, could you have just been like, just could you just have elaborated like a little bit more, dude? Yeah. Um, could, you, could you give us a little more? Come on. Yeah. Yeah. We're missing out. So uh, that, I mean, that's absolutely fascinating. I, yeah, I'm excited to hear it, that that is what the next project is. Cause any more Medea in the world, I think is a good thing. I it's my understanding we there's there's a few different Medea retellings coming mm-hmm. through the pipeline. I am talking to somebody in just a few weeks about Savage Beasts, which comes yes. out. Yes. Oh, I've started that. It yes. is delightful. Oh, I'm so excited. I haven't started it yet. Um, but it's yeah, uh, Ronnie. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing her name right, but she hasn't been on my show yet to tell me, so I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, she'll, I'll be speaking with her um, about about that retelling, which is so fascinating because it's like so not in Greece, which is so unique. And, yeah, and she's. Yeah. I mean, she puts Medea into British-controlled India mm-hmm. as in um, in a Bengali princess, I think. Mm. So. Ronnie is highlighting all of these really interesting questions of race and gender and colonization that I think really speak to the myth. Like mm-hmm. in Euripides' version, in Euripides' play, it's Medea's status as a foreign woman that really makes her position after Jason leaves her so precarious. Exactly. Where is she going to go? What yeah. is she going to do? Yeah, she's a barbarian. You know, yeah. she can't just live amongst the Greeks like anyone else. It's yeah. I know. I'm, I, yeah, fascinating. I also I, I find like one of Jason's lines in Euripides fascinating where he's explaining to Medea like he's leaving her he's breaking up with her and he's like but Medea this is going to be good for our children because they'll be the stepsons of a king mm-hmm. and it's like Jason what's going on do you actually believe that and mm-hmm. are you performing again like there's a lot I think discussed and written about Medea's performance in Euripides that she's she's always telling people what they want to hear she's always mm-hmm. putting on a mask but Jason is doing the same thing mm-hmm. yeah I love Euripides more than anything so I mean yeah I, everything he does is perfect um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I, I mean gods all of these characters I could talk about them forever but this has been so much fun i could talk about myths forever and so just having someone on to talk about not only your book but also just like mythology broadly is such a thrill so thank you thank you so much this is i think i mentioned before this is my my first interview for the novel and my first podcast interview ever and i really appreciate it being with someone who is so lovely and curious about the myths and kind well thank you i'm glad it was a good experience i do love nerding out with uh fellow greek myth nerds so i always really honestly that has been one of my favorite parts of the publishing journey so far is just like just vibing about myths with people yeah like we're all out there if if my my entire life has proved anything like there are so many people who want to nerd out about myths and nerd out about like really intricate details like when i don't have authors on i have academics and they're like here, let me tell you about my research into this like really specific concept. And those get just as many downloads as everything else in my podcast. And that is always such a thrill to me that like, 
just any old nerd on the internet wants to hear about the most like niche <laughs> ancient Mediterranean nonsense. And it's, yeah, it's like, really yes, fun. tell me about incantation balls. Yes. Want to hear all about them. Like, <laughs> this nerdery has given me a career. I will take it. Um, yeah, so no, such a thrill to do this. So I will be, um, you know, mentioning uh, in the introduction and outro, which I record separately because I cannot sound scripted in front of other humans, um, the, you know, about where to get your book and when and things. And this episode will come out around when it is released. But is there anything you want to share? Any kind of, um, I don't know if there's any kind of special publication stuff you you want to share or know that you should be. It's fine if there isn't either. <laughs> I don't think there is. I think cool. the UK pub date is May 25th. The US pub date is June 13th. And you can get it anywhere books are sold. Hell yeah. Amazing. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. You are all so cool and nice. Thank you so much for listening. As always, I do love talking to authors and anyone else who has such deep and fun knowledge of the ancient realm and its sources. Luna was such a joy to speak to, and I hope you all check out her novel, Psyche and Eros, because gods, who doesn't need a new version of their story? Psyche is so fun. Their story is so fun. And I can't wait for you all to see how Luna has handled it. So, you know, find it wherever you get your books. I think it's available most places where English books are sold. And follow Luna on all the places that she mentioned. I have linked to them in the episode's description, as always. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians and handles so many podcast-related things, from running the YouTube to creating promotional images and videos to editing and research. Stephanie Foley works to transcribe the podcast for YouTube captions and accessibility. The podcast is hosted and monetized by iHeartMedia. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you get access to bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click on the link in this episode's description. Thank you all. You are the best. I am Liv, and I love this shit. comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, to live and die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. 
the war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.